Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And guess what, Madigan? What's up? It's Women's History Month. It's Women's History Month! What's up? Obviously. (laughs) So we have decided for the first week of, well, I shouldn't say we, you came up with this amazing topic to talk about. Well, but I think you put it on our spreadsheet for us to talk about. Did I? I don't know now. I must have. One of us did, and whoever it was had a great idea. But Keegan was like, let's talk about the Radium Girls. And I was like, fuck yes, we're going to talk about the Radium Girls. This story has everything, you guys. Oh, and it is upsetting, you guys. It's upsetting, but it's also like... It just fucking has everything. It has positives. It has negatives. It has crime. It has sickness. It has badass female power. It has everything. So we're going to tell you all about the Radium Girls now. If you don't know about them yet, so you sure will. Let's start off with talking about Radium itself, in case yeah. people are not aware. Yeah. So well, it was invented by Marie Curie. Marie. Marie. Mm-hmm. I always have a hard time. Marie Marie Curie, because they sound so similar. Marie Curie, yeah, because Marie Curie. I think she's French. French sounds kind of French to me. Well, her husband's name was Pierre. I mean, so I want to say yes. Okay, let's okay. Call, let's say she's French. We're gonna state Got that it. as a fact. She's French. Well, okay. So, <laughs> sorry, we're a mess. Okay, so they discovered radium in mm-hmm. 1898, and it was successful in treating cancer in people, and because of this. People started thinking like, "Oh, it must be super healthy." And then on top of that, it um, like regenerated your red blood cells, which made you look super healthy when you first started um, using it. Using it, yeah. And I mean, and they were using radium and all sorts of things like you know lipsticks and tonics and yeah, I mean all sorts of things. And it, you know, I understand it because now we know that you know radiation or chemo, we know it's literally it's killing your cancer, like it's attacking your body and. Cells. Why people feel so horrible when they go through chemo. Mm-hmm. But at the time, that wasn't really a, a known thing. It was, oh, this makes this kills cancer? Well, then we're going to use it on everything to make us healthy. Right. It energized you, yeah. or, or so they thought. So it became an additive in a number of everyday products. It was an additive in toothpaste and cosmetics. We actually talked about it in our Harmful Beauty Trends episode. We because did. it was used as a cosmetic because it helped your skin to glow, which it, it, it actually did. Fucking literally. And it was also put into food and drinks. There was even a drink called Radiathor, which was distilled water that had tiny amounts of radium dissolved in it. Yeah. And it was advertised as a cure for the living dead and perpetual sunshine. And there was a socialite slash um, athlete who would take it every day and was very famously took it every day (laughs) and then died in the early 1930s. Yeah. As a result of this, but yeah, but back then in the in the very early 1900s, people didn't understand that this well, was no, bad it was, for you. It was a completely new product, so it it was just very unknown. I mean, the man who invented this radium paint um, had just created it, and it was 
made for painting um, the dials on these watches for the military during World War One. So we've spoken about this before. The men are all off fighting World War One, and the women are needing to find jobs to take care of their families. And this became the most popular job was to be a, a, a dial painter. Right. But it was very new. No one had an understanding that it could actually be harmful. So this luminous paint. It was developed by converting the radiation into light through a fluorescent chemical, and people went insane for it because it, unlike glow-in-the-dark stuff that we'd had before that needed time to recharge, it didn't need time to recharge, and it basically glowed forever. Like, it glowed constantly. So, in... 1917, the first of three United States radium factories opened in New Jersey. Others would follow uh, pretty quickly either later that year or in the coming years in both Illinois and Connecticut. So the factory in New Jersey in 1917, it started hiring women, as you were saying, and the jobs became extremely coveted because not only was radium seen as this glamorous, healthy substance, but also the job paid extremely well. The girls earned between $20 to $24 per week, which was substantially more than the $15 medium wage yeah. in New Jersey uh, for women at the time. It was actually, it was they were saying it was three times, they were making three times more, which gave these girls independence. And, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the women that were hired were like young teenage girls because their hands were so tiny and they could do this intricate work. Mm -hmm. And then those teenage girls would then refer their friends and their sisters and their families. And that, you know, in these factories, there were rows of like siblings of sisters that were all doing this together. And it was like the best job. It was like, it made so much money. It was easy work, you know, and it really, it answered a lot of, or it solved a lot of problems for these women. Which when you know what's coming is like really upsetting. So before we kind of get into the details of what these women were actually doing in these factories, let me just point out the way that radium works in the body, like the way that it chemically reacts. Do it. Um, The way it reacts in the body is very similarly to calcium. So when it's ingested, especially in large quantities, the body starts to mistake radium for calcium and it gets incorporated into the bone, which can cause bone cancers and necrosis of the bone. And it actually creates like it almost looks like you're it looks like honeycomb. Right. So necrosis is basically that the cells in the bone are being broken down and dying. So it it, it does look like that. It's eating away at you. If you've ever seen this is a weird way to put it, but it's where my mind goes. If you've ever had aerated chocolate, like, and you 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 rip it open and you have like those bubbles, the bubbles or, yeah. or you have like bread that has like a lot of air bubbles in it, yeah, that's kind of what I picture. With Why the is gum. that so disturbing? Like the fact that you just mentioned food, I don't know. It just like it's disturbing. To <laughs> Sorry, think about. no, it's okay. My it's mind's just, like, always such... on food, so that's no. the first thing I think. <laughs> no, but it's just a really like troubling image. Um, well. So the paint that we were talking about was originally branded as Undark. That was what the company called it. And the United States Radium Corporation bought... What a lazy fucking title. Yeah, bought the Undark from, you know, this radium company that was creating this paint. And um, U.S. Radium was a major, 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 major supplier for the radioluminescent watches to the military, like we said, and the plant in New Jersey employed over 100 workers to paint dials, and there were about 4,000 employees hired by the U.S. Radium uh, Corporation in the U.S. and Canada. So this was a huge 
industry and a right. huge corporation that was making tons a lot and of tons money. and tons of mm-hmm. money. Yeah. And again, when we say that these were young women, we're not talking about young women by today's standards. We're talking about young women by 1917 standards. Like 13, 14. Yes, 13, 14, yeah. 15. Like, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. And again, there would be whole families. Like, for instance, in 1917, at the age of 15, Catherine Schlob um, went to work at one of these companies, the one in New Jersey, the Radium Luminous Materials Corporation. And when she started work there, she brought along her cousin Irene. So you have, like, (laughs) families who are all working together, and they're all being exposed to dangerously high levels of radiation. Exactly. And not only through the paint that they were using to paint with every day, but also there was radium dust and residue in the factories that contaminated everything, would cling to their skin, and they quickly developed the nickname Ghost Girls. Well, but they did that to themselves, too. So they were working... So the conditions were they were working in these cubicles and they had to mix their own paint. So they're in these cubicles, they're mixing paint, they're doing what's called the lip dip technique. So that means that every time they paint to keep the tip of their brush really um, pointed, they would put it between their lips and make it to a fine point, dip it into the paint and then paint and then they would put it back into their lips. So they're slowly eating more and more radium as they're doing that. But then also they were like, getting it all over their clothes and realizing it had this cool glowing effect. So the girls would wear their, like, fancy dresses to work Mm -hmm. and would let themselves get covered in this radium dust and they would glow and they would paint it on their teeth and they would put it in their lipstick. Right, yeah, because... And they would go out and party. They They had known as the the ghost girls. It was cool. They had no understanding that it was dangerous. And part of the reason why they had no understanding that it was dangerous is because when they were first instructed to do this lip-dip technique, they raised concerns as Mm -hmm. to the safety of sticking radium directly into their mouths, and they were promised by the manager that it was perfectly safe. Yeah. And even though they were promised this, the U.S. radium's management and scientists, they took precautions. They They, they gave literature out. Right. So they had masks, gloves, and screens. They did not equip workers with the same um, kind of precautions. Yeah, the men that were actually handling the radium to make the paint were using, like, ivory-tipped tongs Mm -hmm. and wearing protective gear, where these women, they were wearing their party dresses to work. And they were, you know, even instructed not to use a cloth because like, you know, mm-hmm. some of the women were like, well, can we do something else? Like between each stroke, can right. we like use a cloth or um, something else to wipe it on? And the managers said that they feared wasting too much product in doing that, which doesn't fully make sense. Well, they'd be me. eating the product or they'd be on a... Yeah, but it's wasted as far as they're concerned either way. Yeah. So I don't quite it's, understand. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Before we move any further, I do want to mention two other... Um, Uh, radium dial companies that were really prominent at the time because they're going to be mentioned a lot throughout this story and that is the radium dial company which was established in illinois in 1922 Mm -hmm. and then another competing radium dial company was luminous process company um and both companies had as many um employees as the u.s radium corporation they all had just tons of women Mm -hmm. working for them and yeah so As I said earlier, radium gives the illusion of good health by stimulating the red blood cells, and so many women actually believed they were getting healthier working at these factories. And, of course, poisoning, the effects of poisoning are not immediate. So 
it took a while for anything to actually happen. And it wasn't until 1922 that women started complaining about toothaches. It was at first it was toothaches and fatigue. They were tired and their teeth hurt. Yeah. And the women even would go to the managers and be like, you know, I'm starting to feel really weird. Like they would kind of bring it up and the manager would say, oh, it's just making your cheeks rosy. Like it's just that healthy glow. You know, like they were just so so condescending. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, they say it takes about five years for the symptoms to really show through radium poisoning and um yeah uh, the first death was actually in 1922 do you want to talk about maggie maggie molly maggia yes so molly maggia was a 22 year old employee uh there in new jersey and it started as it started with many people uh as a toothache Mm -hmm. she went to the dentist and the dentist was like "Mm, weird and just like kind of pulled her tooth out but then the tooth next to it started to hurt so the dentist just pulled that one out yeah and uh in the place so this is from a buzzfeed article i got a lot of stuff out there that too. buzzfeed they were article great was article. actually great yeah. yeah the the true crime ish kind of stuff on buzzfeed is always top notch yeah. they write a really great article yeah and so this is pulled directly from that in the place of the missing teeth agonizing ulcers sprouted as dark flowers blooming red and yellow with blood and pus they seeped constantly and made her breath foul yeah then she suffered aching pains in her limbs that were so agonizing she eventually she was eventually left unable to walk. The doctor thought it was rheumatism. He sent her home with aspirin. 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 Yeah. Well, and then eventually her entire lower jaw, roof of her mouth, and even some of her bones and her ears were said to just be large abscesses. Mm-hmm. And then it got fucking worse. She goes mm-hmm. back to the dentist and he prods at her jaw and a piece of her jaw comes just out and falls off. Fucking hands. And then later she goes back to the dentist and she loses her entire jaw. Which also... I was like... What happens to your tongue? Does it just... What happens to everything else? Because they basically say that he just lifts her jaw out with his hands. And I'm like... Well, Well, because we were talking about the holes that were created, your jawbone, like where the hinges are, there's not that much attaching to it. So you were getting holes there. What about all the other connective tissues? Like, did they have to actually like cut that off? They might have. Because I I was so confused by that. They might have. Yeah, I think it just kind of fell out. Um, Before we get much further on Molly, I want to mention that her sisters, Albina, uh, Quinta, and Irma also worked with her. And there's not much um, said about Quinta as far as the Radium Girls go, like, in this story. But I just want to interject really quick that she had a really sad and interesting life. Oh, no. She, um... She was really badly abused by her husband, and so she tried to divorce him after, like, years of, like, having kids with him and being married to him for a long time. But the judge postponed the trial to give the husband a opportunity to patch things up with his wife. What a piece of shit. Right? And then, so that's exactly what he did. And then uh, Quinta's brother-in-law, so her husband's brother, then went and told the judge that the couple had had a, quote, bedside reconciliation and that the husband came back and was forgiven. So that's kind of an interesting tidbit. That So like you were saying, a lot of these families were together and her sister Quinta was one of them and she had just this horrible sad that's really sad family life it doesn't have anything to do with this particular story but I was reading about well, all of the individual women and their their fight and perseverance and like sense of self like she even just to try to divorce him is pretty phenomenal I you think know it's uh I think it's an important example of the kind of lives these women were leading at this time it's like they didn't have real 
rights. So it made the idea of having a job that paid you well, that gave you some kind of semblance of financial independence and security, look all the more appealing. And so it makes what happened later um, even more nefarious and upsetting and malicious. Yeah. Well, Molly eventually died in September of 1922. And this is only after a year. She right. was she was 24 years old. At 23, she was healthy. So the sickness spread to the tissue in her throat, and her mouth then flooded with blood. She began hemorrhaging so fast that the nurse couldn't stop the bleeding, and she died. And her death certificate said that she died of syphilis, and the USRC denied any responsibility for any of you know her like her death or any of the other deaths that would occur in the following years and but this was the story that kind of started spreading around the factory and around New Jersey and the east coast area that like oh my gosh this woman died right and what's the reason behind that and what she actually died of became later known as radium jaw yeah. and it was a thing It was named that way because it happened so often with these girls in particular, these women in particular, because they were sticking the radium directly into their mouths, which was, of course, that targeted their teeth. The bones that were in their mouths became affected first. They weren't the only bones in their bodies to be affected by any means, but it kind of would start there. And you can actually see... Some really horrifying pictures, if you want to go down that route. I'm sure we'll post some to our Instagram. But if you want to look at some really gnarly pictures, you can yeah. see the radium jaw in particular. It is, it's like a giant tumor. It's uh, so bad. On the lower half of the face. It's, it's so bad. It's horrifying. So yeah. at this point, women started getting sick and dying at a pretty rapid rate. Yeah. Um. The... Like you said, the US, uh, USRC. Yeah, the USRC denied any responsibility for the deaths. And after suffering a downturn in business after two years, uh, because of what they they called gossip, they did everything they could to basically gaslight these women. They did. They called it rumors, gossip, like talk. And they were like, you know what? We're just going to appease these women. We're going to run some tests they and also, see what's going on. They also did a thing that that happens a lot nowadays. We see a lot with, like, Weinstein accusers uh, and, like, rape victims, sexual assault victims, where they're like, oh, they're in it for money. Yeah. Like, they're just sick on their own yep. and they work for corporations that make a lot of money. So, so they want our money to pay for their bills. Right. So they're saying that um, we're liable for their illnesses. So... In 1924, they did finally commission an expert, but again, only because these women had raised so much of a stink that it was affecting their Well, and everyone was getting sick. It was becoming more and more obvious that there was obviously a common denominator in why everyone working in this one particular job was getting sick. Right, and if all of your employees get sick, it affects your ability to make money. Like, I I really want to drive that point home. Like, nothing they ever did was was for the well-being. Out of concern. Well, and also, these experts that they brought in were very much, it's kind of like when you're on trial and you're in the defense and you have a expert for the defense. You know, they're going to kind of give you the correct results, but in the way that you want to hear them. Because a lot of times, like, they would they would say that, you know, there was no real reason that the radium would be causing this. Well, the very first research into this. So they they did an independent study in the yeah. beginning. And this study um did confirm a link between radium and the wi- and the women's illnesses, 
But the president of the firm was pissed, and instead of accepting the findings, he did pay for new studies yeah. uh, that published the opposite conclusion. Yes. He also lied to the Department of Labor, which had begun investigating about the verdict of the original report. So, yeah. like, the original report came out and was like, yeah, there's a link. He hired someone else. They gave different results. And then he went to the Department of Labor and was like, we did yeah. all these studies, and they all said it was fine. So this is – the study you're talking about, is that the one with Dr. Harrison Martland? Not yet. Okay. This was the very first study. It was an independent study that was yeah. like, yeah, no, there's a thing here. Yeah. They just covered it up immediately. Um, well, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, so in 1925, a year later, that's when Dr. Harrison Martland came in and started devising tests. And that was what um, he was able then to explain, you know, the radium jaw and what was happening to their bodies and say that this, in fact, is the reason why. Because, like you said, the USRC was keeping it very hidden from its employees and from the public and the media of what the actual results were. So this Dr. Martland kind of came in and was able to explain to these women what was happening to their body. And um, he was also saying what could happen, what's going to happen for them down the road. And a lot of these women didn't even know that they were poisoned until they would, like, get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, pass by a mirror, and their bones would be glowing through their skin. Right. Like, it's crazy. So he actually gave them some information of, like, why all of this is happening. Um, And the industry really did their best to cover up Martland's findings. And because of that, that's kind of what encouraged the Radium Girls of New Jersey to decide to kind of band together and fight for their rights. Right. So he also found, and I think that this was probably a factor uh, in why some of these women, some of these names that we're about to throw at you, why they felt so strongly that they needed to act, because he also found that there was no way to remove the radium from women's bodies. Like, if it was in your body, it's it's it there now. We, we can't extract it. We can't repair your bones. There's nothing we can do. So if you are on the road to decline or death, it is going to happen. It's going to happen. You so are going to die young. Around the time that Molly first got sick, there was another colleague of hers named Grace Fryer who yep. also became ill. And by the time of um, Martland's findings, Grace's spine was crushed. She was wearing a steel back brace. Yeah. And then another of the women who um, entered into this, what became a lawsuit, her jaw had been eaten away. It was just a stump on the bottom of her face. And another woman's legs had been shortened and spontaneously fractured. Yeah. Should we talk a bit about the New Jersey women? Yes, Before please. we tell the story. So you mentioned Grace Fryer. She... I mean, it's obvious she was the first person to kind of lead this fight. And it's pretty obvious when you think of the fact that her father was a union delegate and she was also known to be a huge advocate for getting women to exercise the right to vote. She was a very outspoken woman and was very headstrong. And it's no it's no surprise that she was the one that wanted to step forward first and say something. Um, you've mentioned Catherine Shobe, who began working as a dial painter at age 14. Uh, Marguerite Carlo was the first dial painter to bring a lawsuit against the radium company, and she ended up winning, and le- which led to the Waterbury Clock Company banning the lip dip technique, which saved many lives, and she worked alongside her sister Sarah, who was also active in the case against USRC. Ella Eckert was the first radium girl to die of a rare bone cancer seen in many of these dial painters. Um, So those are just kind of like the main um, New Jersey girls, along with uh, Quinta and Albina, who were... um, 
the sisters of Molly. Of, of, of Molly, thank you. So they all kind of went in together. I mean, they each had some separate lawsuits, but they all kind of came together. So, yeah, in 1925, after Dr. Martland's findings, Grace Fryer was like, well, we're going to fucking sue them. Like, if yeah. they're not going to take responsibility, our families are dealing with all of these, like, medical bills, well, and, and all and of these issues. And dealing with sick children that need care and things like, I mean, not children, they were, most of them were adults by this point, but still, like, you're dealing with women who need extreme care and the thing that was frustrating is that you know they really wanted to fight this huge corporation but most attorneys were either like too scared or they didn't believe their claims and grace tried for a very very long time to find a lawyer and their other big problem was that radium poisoning was not seen as a compensable disease and it hadn't been discovered until the girls got sick like there was no such thing as radium poisoning and the statute of limitations for this kind of sickness is two years and it could take up to five years for symptoms to present themselves so they're coming in and it's been eight years that they've been working at the factory well sorry right. your stat- you've been sick yeah. for longer than two yeah. years your statute of limitations is up right and it took them a really long time until they finally found this young lawyer named Raymond Barry who decided to take on the case yeah so it took them two years yeah. to find a lawyer uh, and so she filed her her case along with four other women in 1927 and at this point when she finally decided to file her case she had been given just four months to live yeah and so she knew she was going to die but there were women still in employed in these factories all over the country. She actually said, it is not for myself that I care. I am thinking more of the hundreds of girls to whom this may serve as an example. And I thought that that was really amazing. And also it kind of flies in the face of this idea that these women are doing this for money or compensation in any way, because it's like, they don't want gonna die. Like she knows she's going to die. She doesn't want other women to be put in this position, the same position that she's been put in, to go through this agonizing illness. So this case settled in the women's favor in 1928, and it became a milestone of occupational hazard law. So there hadn't really been... I mean, you hear about all of these working conditions, especially like in the early um, 1900s and before. Yeah, the Great Depression era. Well, but before... Yeah, and before, yeah. Yeah. And you could essentially just do whatever to workers. You could pay them whatever, uh, anything that happened. Um, They talk about like the Triangle Shirt Factory... Which was a a horrifying disaster in which, like, a bunch of people died, mostly women, in this factory, and that the factory owners were not held responsible, even though it was due to unsafe working conditions. Yeah. And that was just before all of this happened. So there really were no consequences for these corporations. Well, and the other thing is, is that, like... The they settled out of court. The New Jersey girls settled outside of court and never actually did the full trial and everything. But the the amazing thing about this is, is that yes, they were they they won their case, but also that meant that their story began being told all over the country. Like the media was all about this mm-hmm. story, as they would be. It's all these young women getting right. sick. The big you know, the man is keeping them down. Like right. a lot of the media painted them in a really great light. And so because of that, like yeah. honestly, because of women like Grace Fryer, she honestly would have been a, a great forgotten feminist favorite a for great us to do. One. 
Because Which we could still do. Yeah. Because of her, in Ottawa, Illinois, a dial painter by the name of Catherine Wolfe, she was reading the coverage, and she said, There were meetings at our plant that bordered on riots. The chill of fear was so depressing that we could scarcely work. So... They were having meetings. They were getting together. They were like, these women in New Jersey, they're saying all this stuff is happening. We're getting sick, too. Mm -hmm. Could this be the same thing? Yeah, and she worked for Radium Dial in Ottawa, Illinois. And, again, the same thing, that Radium Dial denied any responsibility, even though it was incredibly obvious that these women had radium poisoning and were very, very sick. And a lot like Grace Fryer, Catherine Wolfe, who would go on to be Catherine Wolfe Donahue, really had this, like, fighting spirit. She was the youngest child and had two older brothers. Mm -hmm. Which, when I think of, like, which you're the same way. You're one girl and you have all these brothers. There is a certain, like, fight that I associate with that. Like, you've got to be tough enough to kind of deal with all these brothers. It's just a different kind. Because, like, girls I know who had all sisters, they have a different kind of fight in them. You know what I mean? They've got, like, a vocal fight where there's something, (laughs) there's something I feel like with, especially being raised with boys, and she was the only girl of maybe seeing the differences between how the boys are being treated and her. And it seems like maybe she also has all older brothers. She, which yeah, I she do does. She has two like older brothers. Very often there is this protectiveness that if you have a good relationship with your older brothers, yeah. there is this protectiveness that comes in where your brothers want to teach you how to like defend yeah. yourself, take care of yourself, not put up with anybody's shit because they want to protect you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and she... You know, she had the same symptoms as everybody else. She lost her teeth. She lost her jawbone. um, And she even developed a grapefruit-sized tumor on her hip, which I'm like, ow. Ow. So she wanted to sue Radium Dial, but everyone in her community was so mad at her about that because the Great Depression was going on and that was like the last like big industry in the area that was making a lot of money. So she was kind of ridiculed for wanting to go up against radium Mm -hmm. dial. Yeah. And it should be said that this is a full 10 years after uh, the case in New Jersey. So the case in New Jersey was settled in 1928, and it was in 1938 that she was able to give evidence. And there's photos of her giving evidence. In her bed. It's terribly sad. It is sad. her doctor was like, hey, you are too sick. Let this go. You only have a little bit to live. Um... You, you need to just give up this fight. And, and she, she was, was like, like well, no. I'm, I'm not going to. So they gave evidence bedside yeah. uh, in 1938, and she actually won her case. She won. And the other... So she... She also teamed up with other workers. Um, there was... Charlotte Nevins Purcell, Maria Becker Rossiter, Mary Ellen or Ella Cruz, Inez Corcoran? Cor- Cochran? Cochran, maybe? I, yeah, it's... Corcoran. Oh, maybe. Corcoran Valet or Valet. Uh, Francis and Margaret Glekinski and Pearl Paines, along with their lawyer, uh, Leonin Grossman. I don't know. But they all went after Radium Dial. Um, But yes, Catherine Wolfe was like, she literally won the case and then died very, very shortly after. But the thing is, is that radium dial like dipped the fuck out of Illinois. They were like, we're gone. And they went to New York. So they were like trying to get a trial together because I think it was that it wasn't a testimony. It was that she had given her evidence. Right. Yes. She gave evidence. So they were trying to get this trial going, but they had moved to New York and 
So radium dial, so they settled out of court and the radium dial appealed many, many times, but the court always laid in favor of the women. And they even went as far as appealing through the Supreme Court and they wouldn't take, the Supreme Court wouldn't take the case. Right. So and, they kept trying to appeal. Like these yeah. companies, not just radium dial, but the other companies, uh, it was the all whole of, industry. All of these women yeah. were suing at this point. They saw that it had worked in these other places, and so they started suing. And so the radium companies kind of as a whole got together, and they were like, we got to do something about this. So they kept appealing, and by the time it made it to the Supreme Court in 1939, they finally rejected their last appeal. They're like, yeah. you cannot appeal this anymore. Yeah. We're done. Um, the survivors received compensation and part of their deal was that the death certificates would start reporting the correct cause of death. Yeah. Because up until now, I mean, I was reading, especially with Radium Dial in Illinois, I was reading that they were going so far as to interfere with autopsies. They were. They were They were hiding bodies. Hiding bones. They were bones. stealing bones. Yes. They were, uh, yeah, they were changing autopsy results and paperwork. They were doing everything they could to make sure that they were perceived as innocent. And, and the women actually, like, won eight times before Radium Dial had to pay a single cent to them. Right, which is, it's so... Again, whenever we talk about capitalism and how dangerous it can be, and people talk about these other these other um, forms of government, yeah, that are of course very dangerous, yeah, or, or can be very dangerous, or have been very dangerous. There have been a lot of authoritarian regimes and like regimes that are very dangerous, and people always point to those death tolls, right? And they say like this is something that we should be scared of. This is why we should never go towards communism or socialism right. or anything else, because look at these massive death tolls. Well, if you look at the amount of deaths that have happened under and because of capitalism, capitalism. it is massive. Like it the, is. the love of money that has to exist in a human being to go to these lengths, not yeah. only to cover their own ass, but to continue to make money. Like, that's yeah. really what that's it was. What they don't care about anything else but making and, sure that their company is successful. And to not pay... You're looking at the damage, and I'm telling you, if you Google Radium Girls and you look at these pictures... Yeah. Um, it's pretty fucked up. It's very fucked up, and, like, these people who run these companies were looking at these women and, like, seeing what they were doing to them and still were able to go to sleep at night... Yeah, doing like absolutely fucking nothing. Yeah, well, and because not it wasn't it wasn't anything. affecting them. Well, and I mean, and that's the thing is that I think also because they just like postponed it so much, like these women actually ended up getting, um, you know, a really great settlement out of it. Um, each girl received ten thousand dollars, which in today's money is almost one hundred fifty thousand dollars. They also got a $600 a year annuity plus $12 a week for the rest of their lives. And both of those numbers are larger in today's money. Right, of course. And, and, and it is great. It's wonderful that that... Well, they, it wasn't because some... of them, though. But it, it wasn't because of the companies. It was because no, of the No, it's winnings. because of their persistence, which yeah. I understand. And that's great. Like, I'm glad that there was some form of justice done here. But unfortunately... The, like we said earlier, the damage is irreversible. Like, this isn't a disease you recover from. Mm -hmm. You don't get better from it. And yeah. so while there is a list of victims that worked at these plants, the women who are known as the quote-unquote radium girls, the actual number of deaths and, and women who were affected by this mm -hmm. is unknown because yeah. a lot of the women ended up suffering from cancer yeah. later on in life that was most likely uh, attributed to their time working in these 
satisfactories yeah. or other illnesses. So, <laughs> you know, the money's great, but it like it doesn't give you back your it doesn't, health. It doesn't, but it does, you know, they were asking for you know, help when it came to their medical expenses and they were given yes. payment for their medical right. expenses. It is until... justice in, in a certain way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so should we talk a bit about the impact of this whole story and how it changed workers' rights and everything? Totally. So the Radium Girls case was one of the first in which an employer was made responsible for the health of the company's employees. Mm -hmm. And it ended up leading to life-saving regulations and ultimately to the establishment of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which now operates nationally in the United States to protect workers. Yeah, and I mean, before the Occupational Health Administration, there were 14,000 people estimated that died every year on the job. And then now that the Occupational Health Administration is involved, it's just over 4,500, which is still a lot, but in comparison to 14,000 people. Well, and again, as we were saying earlier, like it was kind of happening with impunity before. It was yeah. like there wasn't any responsibility. The people who ran these companies didn't feel like they had to be aware of that because they didn't think it anything would happen to them. Right. So now there's at least some responsibility. They're aware that they could be punished yeah. um, if they don't treat workers fairly, which is insane. It's amazing that this group of women actually ended up changing and this very, law. And very, very young women, Yeah, too. young it's women. It's amazing that their yeah. voices were heard the way that they were. And then additionally, in the 1950s, uh, during the Cold War, many agreed voluntarily to be studied by scientists, mm -hmm. even with intrusive in examinations, because they had been exposed for prolonged periods of time. So when they were worried, like, someone's going to drop the bomb, someone's going to drop a nuclear bomb, um, a, a radium bomb, essentially, yeah. on us... They volunteered for to scientists to yeah. examine what the long-term effects of radium were. Yeah. And so this author of The Radium Girls, Kate Moore, she Which said... Which I want to read. Yeah, totally. She said, almost everything we know about radiation inside the human body, we owe to them. They Which were is, very selfless human beings. Like, all of them were very much like, if this can be preventable for other people in the future, I want to be a part of it. Well, and unfortunately, like, it sucks that this happened to them. Yeah. But kind of the way that we learn yeah. about science and, like, things that happen is by these disastrous kind of things. Yeah, I mean, it so. is it is so horrible that they had to go through that for us to be able to learn. Yeah. But at the same time, that is just unfortunately kind of the way it goes right now, and that's why I really admire people who end up selling their bodies to science when they die. My, mm -hmm. my second cousin passed away last year of a very fast, very aggressive strain of cancer, and she um, donated her body to the University of Minnesota to be tested because yeah. she died so quickly. Anthony actually just got back. He goes every year to the University of um, San Francisco, UCSF, and it's because there's a very rare form of, like, mental dementia uh, that runs in his family, and we were actually just having that conversation last year, or last year, wow, we were just having that conversation last night where he was saying, I think I want to donate my brain Yeah. Uh, after I die because there's only, like, five families in all of the United States that have this degenerative um, genetic yeah. thing, 
And he's like, I feel weird about it, but I also feel like it would do so much good. It's just your brain, too. Yeah. Like, you and can still, if you want to be buried, you can still do a burial. Like, and I think I, that's such a commendable thing. I understand the weirdness, but it's the same reason why I checked that yes box on my, like, organ donors. Like, yeah. yes, is it weird to think about someone taking my eyes out of my head when I'm dead? It is weird, but it's yeah. like if someone else can use them, I'm not using them anymore. Yeah. Well, and for me, I want to be cremated. So it's like, take what you must. Yeah, whatever. Take anything. Doesn't like, matter. I want to be, you know, my body is going to be ashes and I want to be turned into a tree. So take my yeah. eyeballs. It's all good. So in addition to the women that you mentioned before who were actually involved in the lawsuit there in Illinois, there were two women uh, who actually died before the lawsuit, and their names were Margaret Peg Looney and Pearl Payne. How great would it be to have it, the name Peg Looney? Peg Looney. Like, I'm Peg Looney. Like, that just sounds like such a great name. Yeah, I and it's, it. it's just really sad because... They these, were also young. These like, women died very young. Yeah. yeah Pearl so. Paines was, I believe, the first woman to die in Ottawa, in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And she was very young. It was very sad. And Peg Looney was 24 when she yeah. passed away. So it's just, it's just devastating. Can I tell you about a radium girl that didn't die right away? Yes. Okay, so there's a woman named May Keene, and she was a dial painter at the Waterbury, Connecticut office in 1924, and she hated the job. Like, she went in, and she was like, this sucks. So she, they told her how to do the lip dip technique, and she was like, this paint tastes gritty, and I don't like it. I don't want to do this. So after a few days, her manager came up and asked if she wanted to quit. So she did. She left. So she only worked there for a few days, and... um. Years later, she said, I wish I had met him after to thank him because I would have ended up like the rest of them. Keen did experience some health problems, though, in her life. She had bad teeth. She had migraines. She had two bouts of cancer. And there's no way to really know if working in the factory had anything right. to do with those health problems. But probably. Prob- I mean, she only worked there for a few days, but it's still probably enough to get... It's absolutely enough. Like, yeah. for instance, Marie Curie, who is the person who discovered radium... She died from the effects of radium poisoning, and her documents, like her diaries, her notes, all those things, um, they they don't allow the general public to access those. Like, not even in museums or anything. They're still considered contaminated by radiation. Yeah. So uh, being exposed that directly, especially having stuck it in your mouth, Mm -hmm. even for a couple of days, it's going to give you some kind of, like, lasting effect. It's in your body forever. It doesn't go away. It has the potential to, I should say. Like, you may not experience effects. Like, I don't know if every single woman who worked there for two days um, had effects from the radiation. But But it would make sense because you said once it's in your body, it doesn't really leave. So it does make sense. But I like that she said, I was left with different things, but I lived through them. You just don't know what to blame. She was just kind of like, it might be for the factory. It might not be. I don't know. But Keen died in 2014 at the age of 107. She fucking defied the odds. So she died in 2014 at the age of 107. Like, that was a really, really long time to survive. I, I really feel like some people are just stubborn. Like, yeah. there are some people who I'm are not just like, die yet. yeah, no, I'm not ready to die yet, yeah. and I'm just not going to. And it doesn't really matter if I'm sick yeah. or, or any of these other things, you know? Yeah, and it's just, it's such a fascinating... 
I mean, science is fascinating when it, especially like health sciences for me is, are really fascinating. Um, because especially something like this, like we said, it had never been known before. This was Mm -hmm. a new thing. And it's, you know, you see some women that lasted months, some women that survived to be 107 years old. Like it's really crazy, the differences, but their stories and their experiences and their health issues are really going to help the future and knowing what to look out for. It's a fascinating piece of history for so many reasons. And so forgotten. Like, yeah. It's crazy that, like, I heard this story... I my Favorite Murder did my it. My Favorite Murder. Was that mm-hmm. it? Because I was like, I heard it on a podcast years yeah, ago. Yeah. My, well, my Favorite Murder did it, I think, like, end of last year or something like that. But mm. but they did do it, and it was fascinating to me when I, whenever I heard it there, and I was surprised that I had never... Um, heard this story before. Yeah. And it does. It hits on so many different things. Because very clearly, like, I was reading an article, which I ended up not taking a bunch of stuff from because I found things other places that contradicted, and so I didn't know how um, credible the website was. But I liked it because it was framing everything through a feminist lens and how this was able to persist for so long. And part of that was because... It was female workers. Yeah. And they weren't being taken seriously. Their health concerns weren't being taken seriously. Their safety well, wasn't yeah, being and taken there was seriously. Even, there was even somewhere that I read that it wasn't until one of the first male handlers of radium that they ever even thought that there was something wrong. Like, it, it took one guy to die. It took a man to die for them to be like, oh, well, maybe these other girls are telling the truth. Yeah, so you know, there is something about that time period and being not just a woman, but a very, very young woman. Like, seen as a kid, basically, but treated like an adult in the workforce. But, like, being not believed and treated not very well because they could get away with it. Yeah, it's a fascinating piece of women's history, which is why we wanted to talk about it today, because it's not something that I think everyone knows about, unless you're a My Favorite Murder fan, in which case you've heard this story already. But if you aren't, or you haven't heard it there, you may never have heard of this. Can I say really quick that we talked about Black Wall Street before My Favorite Murder did? They talked about it last week. We did, and also I listened to it, and they left some stuff out. I didn't listen to it because I was like, I just talked about this. I'm not going to hear the same story I talked about last week. I wanted to hear how she did it. and I'm not as big of a fan of My Favorite Murder anymore, so it's harder for me to, if I don't care about the story, I'm not going to listen to it. Yeah, I understand that. For sure. But yeah, it's interesting, all of these stories that are not taught in school, they're not taught in history class, that only, if you're like a science or health major, maybe you've heard about these stories, but they are these stories that have been, you know, pushed aside, and I wonder if having it be a story about a group of young women, if that could be part of why it's been pushed aside in history. Absolutely. I absolutely think that that's part of the reason why we yeah. haven't heard as much about it. Because as we talked about with Black History Month, as we've talked about whenever it comes to any people of color, um, women's history, the history of people of color, these are not the things that were prioritized in history class yeah. for us. Well, because our our textbooks were written so, so long ago, and, that it, and it was written from a very white male gaze. Of course. So we're not learning about all of these. You know, if you, if you, I had some great teachers growing up that taught me things that went beyond the textbooks that I'm forever grateful for, but unless you have one of those teachers, there's so many of these stories that are not spoken about because they didn't care. They didn't care enough to want to teach people about them. Right, of course, because it doesn't make them look very good. Yeah. So there is that portion of it, uh, I think, is a big part of it. And whenever we talked about Polly Murray a, a few um, 
It was about a month and a half ago. Yeah, maybe? like a month and a half ago, whenever we were talking about Polly Murray, she was really instrumental in getting black history, women's history, into the colleges that she was teaching at. When we talked about the Black Panthers, they were really instrumental in working towards getting black history to be taught in school. So yeah. it wasn't until the fairly recent past that women's history, black history, the history of other um, people of color or Native Americans was even being discussed. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, these are the stories that I love to talk about because all week I'm like, oh my gosh, Max, I just read this, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like, these are the types of stories that I feel like people really want to hear because it is so shocking. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, it has everything. It has everything in a story. Like, it's so fascinating and heartbreaking but triumphant and wonderful at the same time and uh we need stories like this in women's history month to show the hardships that women have gone through um throughout time but also how these women have really changed the world in a positive way right yeah absolutely i'm so surprised that there hasn't been a like, blockbuster movie about this. There was a movie called Radium Girls, I think. I just saw it when I was looking at the photos during our little pause. Yeah, but I'm like, I want something starring Carrie Mulligan. You know this what I mean? Was, like, I saw Helena Bonham Carter in a photo. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'll look it up. I'll check it out. But I would love to read that book, The Radium Girls. Yeah, me too. I think I might read that next. I need totally. a book. So, you guys, we really hope that you liked this episode as much as I, at least. I'm sure you enjoyed mm-hmm, researching absolutely. it as well. I was really, really into it, so I hope that you guys got a lot out of this and learned another really great story that you're fascinated by. Um, We are still taking suggestions for the rest of Women's History Month, so if there's someone or something that you'd really love for us to talk about, write us in immediately, (laughs) because we just got March here, guys. Like, write us in now if there's something that you're thinking of. And you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com with all of your suggestions. You can also direct message us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist feminist and follow us there we also have a twitter at yanf podcast y-a-n-f podcast and f you went really high this time i I know i like to try and do like a little bit of harmonizing we can sing it y-a-n-f nope we had to work on that not good (laughs) it was really bad david bickford is listening to this like i've taught them nothing yeah um so Anyways, that's our Twitter. Um, We also have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and chat with fellow listeners on our group page. You can rate and review us on our business page and like us, tell your friends about us, get everyone on Facebook on there. Um, You can also listen to us on... Oh, wait. Never mind. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) I almost forgot. Uh, We haven't gotten one in a while. They make us super happy. You will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. Tag us with your Instagram handle. If we do not uh, tag you in it, I did actually go back into comments and I tagged somebody in a Reviews Day Tuesday after the fact. So if you see yours and you want to get the shout out that you deserve... Let us know, and we'll be happy to give you credit where credit is due. Totally. Um, If you don't already, listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a little bit. Yeah. That's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.